Hi, and welcome back to Malicious Life in collaboration with CyberReason. A quick note before we begin, this episode follows from the content covered in our last. If you haven't yet, go listen to our episode on the Great Firewall of China and come back when you're finished. I'll be waiting. When Western technology companies marketed research, goods, services, and employees to China to help build the most impressive internet censorship and cyber-spying apparatuses in the world, they were acting apolitically. The consequences of those actions, however, were far from apolitical. Take, for instance, the Falun Gong religious movement. In a vacuum, Falun Gong isn't the most attractive protagonist of a podcast episode. In addition to peace, meditation, and transcendence, its founder, Li Hongzhi, is one of those religious leaders who also preaches about the immorality of homosexuality and aliens on Earth influencing global politics. In the U.S. and Europe, Falun Gong is known for aligning with the alt-right, most notably by having founded the Epoch Times, a pro-Trump paper with a panache for conspiracies. And the movement's official emblem, the Falun, is basically just a bunch of swastikas. Now, look, on its own, I get it. For thousands of years before the Nazis, the swastika was a perfectly innocent symbol in ancient Buddhism. But considering Falun Gong was invented in the 1990s, you'd figure they could have gone with, like, anything else. So, Falun Gong may be off-putting, but in the mid-90s, they came under the ire of the Chinese state in a way you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemies. The movement was growing and failing to comply with the secular government's actions to rein in its influence. So the government banned their books and made their practice, in essence, criminal. The conflict between the Communist Party and Falun Gong was epitomized when, just after midnight on July 20th, 1999, hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent members were forcibly taken from their homes and arrested by state police. That event set the tone for what was to come. Throughout the 21st century, Falun Gong members have been targeted, surveilled, and sent to prisons. According to various reports from Amnesty International, the Washington Post, and others, those prisoners have been subject to forced labor, forced feeding, sleep deprivation, brainwashing, and other forms of torture. They've been killed, and worse. Worse, like in 2006, when a human rights lawyer partnered with a former Secretary of State of Canada to investigate something odd that was happening in Chinese hospitals. You see, if you lived in Canada and you needed an organ transplant, the average wait time would have been over half a year. And the Canadian healthcare system was pretty good with a relatively high number of voluntary organ donors. 
What was odd was that in China, beginning in 1991, it only took one or two weeks for most people to receive organ transplants. That's insanely quick, especially considering the rates of organ donation in the country were quite low. Where then were Chinese hospitals getting all those organs? You probably guessed it. I'll save you from the more gruesome details and just say two things. First, between 1999 and 2016, the research identified up to 1.5 million Chinese people who may have been killed for their organs. Second, in their report, the researchers transcribed phone calls with actual doctors who admitted to the practice. It's likely that thousands upon thousands of Chinese people are walking around the world today with organs forcibly removed from people targeted simply because of their religious beliefs. Of course, the Western technology companies that helped build China's digital policing and cyber-spying capabilities couldn't have predicted that their technology would be used in service of such horrific discrimination. Right? In this episode of our show, we're going to talk about one of the most underreported, least known, and most important stories in technology. It involves a lawsuit, an ongoing one, being delayed by a Supreme Court case and complications of coronavirus. Once a ruling in this lawsuit is reached, however, it will have ramifications across the world. But since this case is still ongoing, our episode will be a little different than usual. Instead of telling you the whole story, then wrapping it up at the end, we're going to let you decide. We'll go through the arguments for and against so that all of you out there for yourselves can determine what you think should happen to the defendant. So please take a seat in the juror's box. We're about to begin. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Hoffman. Good morning. Counsel, we're ready to hear the final case of the morning. Okay. Um, Meet Paul Hoffman. He has a kind of friendly uncle energy to him. The kind of guy you could picture yourself going fishing with. He has that kind of face, too. Doughy, a furry mustache. You wouldn't guess, based on appearances alone, that Paul is one of the most respected human rights attorneys in the country. But he is. He's argued before the Supreme Court of the United States on numerous occasions. On April 18, 2017, he's arguing before the Ninth District Court of the United States on behalf of anonymous members of the Falun Gong movement. The defendants, Cisco Systems Incorporated in San Jose, California, as well as John Chambers, the company's CEO, and Freddie Chong, VP of Cisco China. The subject is Golden Shield, the massive Chinese IT infrastructure project which combined internet censorship and pervasive Chinese state cyberspying. The prosecution's claim is simple. 
from their opening brief, quote, Cisco designed, tailored, and integrated its products and features to target Falun Gong believers and to facilitate prosecution, torture, and other abuses. End quote. We're talking about, about horrible human rights violations that Cisco, and it wasn't just the Golden Shield. They could have sold the Golden Shield for just, just the, the crime con- control technology. They sat down with the Chinese, and the Chinese wanted features in this, in this system that would enable them to persecute the Falun Gong in those ways that everybody knew they were doing it. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. They may not like the fact that they're... Did one of the most well-respected technology companies in America really collaborate in persecution and, by extension, allow for the torture of millions of innocent people? Cisco would certainly have something to say about that. Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. Kathleen Sullivan for Cisco. Good morning, Ms. Sullivan. Good to see you, Your Honor. Unlike Paul Hoffman, Kathleen Sullivan is exactly how you'd imagine an all-star corporate lawyer. She's well put together, well-spoken, and clear, and always matter-of-fact. If she were your law school teacher, you could expect a tough semester ahead. If she were your aunt, you wouldn't even consider misbehaving during a Thanksgiving dinner. And she's extremely well accomplished. Former Harvard Law professor, former dean of Stanford Law School, and the first and only woman ever named partner at one of the U.S.'s top 100 law firms. When Barack Obama was president, Kathleen was being considered for a position on the Supreme Court. If all that isn't enough for you, consider this. In 2005, she took the California bar exam and failed. In response, many in the legal community questioned the viability of the test itself. Do you realize how good you have to be to fail a test that has been around for decades and then have people blame the test? She did end up taking it again the following year, and she passed. In Doe versus Cisco, representing the defense, Kathleen stands up to make her opening argument. I'd like to suggest that the court should begin where Mr. Hoffman ended, and that is with the words United States, or in this particular instance, the words San Jose, because that's the easiest ground for you to affirm here. The plaintiffs failed to allege conduct in the territory of the United States that constitutes aiding and abetting the alleged international law violations here. And after Kiabel, that's essential for the survival of their claim. Because it's no accident that within 30 seconds of her opening statement, Kathleen is referring to Kiabel. Since you weren't a juror on that case, let's fill you in. In 2013, Esther Kiobel, the widow of a man sentenced to death by the Nigerian dictatorship of the 90s, sued Royal Dutch Petroleum, better known as Shell, the oil company. The case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Her claim in that case was that Shell Oil Company had been complicit in human rights violations carried out against her husband and eight other activists, collectively known as the Ogoni Nine. 
those Nigerian citizens had been protesting Shell's presence in their lands and for doing so were targeted and killed by government soldiers. According to Esther Kiobel, Shell knew of and even encouraged that government violence. Sounds familiar? The Kiobel case had massive ramifications for how international companies could be sued for actions taken outside of United States borders. Representing the plaintiffs was a renowned human rights lawyer, Paul Hoffman. And his opponent, representing the defense? None other than Kathleen Sullivan. Her first words in the courtroom as she steps up to make her opening argument are these. Quote, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, this case has nothing to do with the United States. It's Nigerian plaintiffs suing an English and Dutch company for activity alleged to have aided and abated the Nigerian government for conduct taking place entirely within Nigeria. End quote. You can sense the confidence in her words. Her argument was airtight. A European company operating in Africa can't be sued in the United States, even if the plaintiffs now live there. By the end of Kiobel versus Royal Dutch Petroleum, little was decided regarding what crimes Shell had actually committed in Nigeria, because they didn't matter. The case would be dismissed in a 5-2 ruling on the grounds that it wasn't relevant to the U.S. judicial system. You can tell now why Cisco hired Kathleen Sullivan to argue on their behalf in Doe versus Cisco. She wasn't just a good lawyer. She was the lawyer who beat Paul Huffman in the Supreme Court on a case involving the corporate aiding of human rights abuses in a foreign country. This is then the first argument you, the jury, must consider. Does the U.S. judicial system have any jurisdiction over crimes committed by China on Chinese citizens? It's a legal question, but also a moral one. Your Honor, and, and it wouldn't be in our system. There are a lot of things in our system that you know, the French believe in rounding up people who send neo-Nazi stuff over the Internet. The British believe in rounding up people who encourage jihad over the Internet. We don't agree with those things, but other systems might. And it is not up to a United States company to determine the foreign policy of the United States. If the foreign policy of the United States is, uh, is it's okay to sell internet equipment to France, Britain, and China, then this court should not create a lavish, new, lenient, aiding and abetting case based on international tribunals to allow suits. Basically, Catherine Sullivan asks, what right does one country have to judge the laws of some other countries? But then again, even the judges know that this argument has its limitations. If you had a system uh, of that identifying Jews in Europe to be rounded up and sent to a, what do they call it, a concentration center? Uh, to, uh, one of those facilities that, that we've just learned about, it was too complicated. Uh, if we manufactured a device, internet device, and sold it to Germany for the specific purpose of rounding up Jews who were then, we knew, going to be sent to concentration camps. Your Honor. Would, that would not be a violation of international law? That would, that would plead aiding and abetting a violation of international law, but you've got two things.
The judge's hypothetical makes sense, right? In what court in the world could you get away with selling poison gas to Hitler? By the same token, should we not hold a technology company liable for selling networking equipment to a government which was known to persecute innocents? Let's move on with our case. The prosecution says that Cisco's executives in America had to know what would be the consequences of their business decisions. The State Department, every year since 1999, has described what this campaign of persecution is, has described that it includes torture and extrajudicial killing and forced labor and the use of psychiatric hospitals. Um, there have been widespread reports in the media, there have been reports in the UN, reports by UN, human rights organizations. So Cisco, doing any due diligence or just existing in the world, would know that... Does it also have to know that... According to the prosecution, if Cisco simply knew that their actions would lead to such persecution and torture, that knowledge in itself would be grounds for criminal punishment. Now, don't worry, listeners, I can hear what some of you out there are thinking. But Ran, it's not exactly a crime to sell your product. The role of a company is to make good things, not monitor how these things are being used by customers. Listeners, I hear you. It's a good point. Say, for example, I were to use this podcast to broadcast to the world that Nate Nelson is ugly and stupid. You wouldn't blame the microphone company for capturing my voice so crisply, would you? A microphone could be used for a podcast, or it could be used to call Nate Nelson ugly and stupid. The microphone manufacturer would be responsible for neither the podcast nor that 100% accurate fact about Nate. Hey, actually, now that I think about it, you make a pretty good point. Similarly, Cisco could sell technology to China for lawful purposes without being complicit in their unlawful uses for that same technology. Just like you could look in any newspaper today and see that American police commit excessive force against certain minorities and against certain gangs, that doesn't mean that a, a company that sells cruiser cars or surveillance cameras or computer technology to hook the patrol car up to the squad room is aiding and abetting the use of excessive force they're aiding and abetting the law enforcement. Golden Shield is a law enforcement device. It is a- I must admit, Sullivan does have a point here. Except to the prosecution, Cisco didn't just know about China's human rights abuses and sell to them anyway. They actually participated in those abuses. They enabled the Chinese to find 90% of the Falun Gong and they put it in their marketing material. They were better than anybody else because they could find more Falun Gong members to put into this system of persecution. That's what they did. In other words, it may be that companies like Cisco not only knew that their equipment would aid in the persecution of Falun Gong members, but they actively marketed to the government how their equipment would be better at persecuting Falun Gong than the competition. 
If the prosecution has the evidence they claim to have, it might mean that Cisco Systems, its VP in China and the CEO of the entire company, were accomplice to human rights abuses against members of Falun Gong. So that was the second argument in our case. Is it enough to know about a crime to be considered as taking part in it? To what extent is a company responsible for crimes done using its products if the crime committed isn't even considered a crime in China? It's a tough question. Lucky for me, it's you, the listener, who needs to decide. When Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web, he wanted it to be an open network where everyone anywhere in the world could share information and ideas freely. But if you've been following Malicious Life and listening to what Snowden and other whistleblowers had to say, you already know that there are plenty of governments that really don't want you to have that freedom. NordVPN's vision is to make Tim Berners-Lee's vision a reality. NordVPN has literally thousands of servers all over the world with military-grade encryption and support for Onion over VPN to allow you to use the internet privately and safely. It even bypasses the Great Firewall of China. NordVPN doesn't keep any logs of its users' activity. In fact, the company is registered in Panama for exactly that reason. NordVPN has a special offer for Malicious Life listeners. 68% off a two-year plan, plus an extra month free. To get that special offer, go to nordvpn.com slash maliciouslife and use the code maliciouslife. NordVPN offers a 30-day money-back guarantee. So go ahead, use NordVPN's super-fast servers to watch streaming videos or even for peer-to-peer file sharing and see for yourself how good is it. 68% off a two-year plan plus an extra month free. NordVPN.com slash maliciouslife and use the code maliciouslife. We thank NordVPN for their support of Malicious Life. Let's assume, for the sake of the argument, that Cisco did know about the crimes committed against Falun Gong members by China. Even so, we need to ask ourselves if Cisco's equipment had what's known as a substantial effect in the criminal act. What's a substantial effect? Well, here's what the prosecution alleges Cisco did, according to the appellate brief. Quote, By integrating Falun Gong databases with an internet surveillance system which identifies and tracks Falun Gong believers' internet activities, Cisco's technology fed sensitive and tailored information on detainees used during interrogation, forced conversion, and torture sessions to Chinese security. Cisco further integrated these Falun Gong databases into China's anti-Falun Gong security infrastructure, including its police detention centers, clandestine jails, public security mental hospitals devoted to political opponents, and other detention and torture sites. 
Cisco's designs show how to track, monitor, and identify Falun Gong believers to further their religious persecution. End quote. If we assume for the moment that the prosecution has the evidence necessary to back up these claims, we should ask ourselves, is this enough to prove a guilty act? Does tracking, monitoring, identifying, and feeding personal information about Falun Gong members have a substantial enough effect on those people's persecution and torture? Kathleen Sullivan naturally disagrees. And that is, there's a fundamental disconnect between identifying members of Falun Gong, which could lead to perfectly lawful means of re-education or punishment under Chinese law. They wouldn't be our system, but they could be lawful. There's a fundamental disconnect between saying that the identification then is what enables the torture. The torture takes place far away in time and place. It's done exclusively by Chinese actors in Chinese locations, in Chinese prisons, in Chinese labor camps. According to the defense, quote, customary international law suggests that such assistance must be specifically, rather than in some way, directed towards the commission of that crime, end quote. In other words, a crime shouldn't be vague. You either acted in service of a crime or you did not. If so, how substantial are routers and databases to the violations of human rights conducted by China on Falun Gong members? Again, it's not an easy question to answer. In summary, we have three overarching points of concern in the case against Cisco. First, jurisdiction. Can crimes committed by the government and police in China be causally tied to business executives in California? Second, is it Cisco's responsibility to know how their technology will be used? If they knew about Chinese human rights abuses, is that alone enough to indict them for their business dealings? Or would they have had to intentionally collaborate in the crimes against Falun Gong? Third, did Cisco substantially contribute to the crimes of the Chinese government? And if so, does it matter whether that contribution was specifically directed towards persecution and torture? With coronavirus being what it is, the final decision in Doe versus Cisco Systems Incorporated will likely not come around for a while. But you, the juror, have now heard the main arguments. What do you think? Write to me on Twitter at @ranlevi, R-A-N-L-E-V-I, and we'll share some of your responses at the end of our next episode of Malicious Life. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd like to give a big thanks and a shout out to all our listeners out there who say nice things about our show on social media and help us spread the word about the podcast. Bhargav Rathud from India. I'm sure I'm butchering your name here, Bhargav, so very sorry about that. Cooper, uh, LR Nutt apparently short for a Land Rover Nut 24-7, Jojo, Linuxis 666, 
Toyn and Michael Seaman from beautiful Berlin, Germany, one of my favorite cities in the world. Thank you, guys. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. You can reach out to me on Twitter at atranlevy or at malicious.life and via email at ran at ranlevy.com. That's R-A-N at R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Our senior producer is the Honorable Nate Nelson. Looking for someone to help your organization create the most amazing podcast? Talk to us. We've been making podcasts since 2007. Thanks again to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. CK Music. Music. Music.